I want to give a shout out to Aventus, the world's leader in trade surveillance for digital assets. Trusted by Coinbase, Gemini, OSL, and many others, Aventus is also helping scores of other firms enter the crypto market. For digital asset trade surveillance, think Aventus. I'd like to also thank Kraken. With Kraken, you can instantly buy and sell over 50 of the most popular cryptocurrencies or earn additional rewards through their industry-leading staking service. Payouts are twice a week and you can earn up to 20% each year. Visit kraken.com scoop to learn more. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy-to-use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone. No account registration is required. Download Exodus at exodus.com and you're ready to go. gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. Today we are joined by Rob Habermeyer, co-founder of Polkadot Network. Rob is joining us from Germany, so we appreciate him figuring out the way time zones work. It always confuses me, but he's building blockchains and such, so I'm sure he can figure this out. So we've been getting a lot of interest from listeners. We obviously have a lot of representatives from the big exchanges and firms that operate in the space, the lending firms, the traders. But a lot of our listeners have been asking for more insights, more conversations centered around layer one specifically. Um, so kind of getting more onto the developer side, bringing those types of people on to talk about like, you know, what are they doing? What's the latest since they launched, since the heady days of the ICO boom and just getting their perspective. So, you know, I wanna sort of start a little bit with like a 101, so to speak, and then we can maybe dive deeper into some of the more granular things you guys are tackling. But I guess to start things off, Rob, introduce the audience to yourself and what's the dealio with Polkadot? Sure thing, Frank. Great to be here. I'm Rob. I've been working, I guess, on Polkadot before Polkadot was Polkadot. My background is as a like crypto researcher, developer. Been working on distributed systems for a long time. So, like many people in this Polkadot space, you know, we really come from this pretty hardcore tech background. Like we're we're innovators, we're builders, and like the way that we really arrived at what we're doing with Polkadot is to look at like, well, what is what is possible technologically? Like what is not being done? What are the limitations of existing systems? Uh, and then we we iterated from there. So uh, I can go deeper into that. I don't know if that's the the moment for it. Uh, exactly this moment in the podcast. I'm sure you guys are. I think we got it. We got to keep going, Rob. You're on a you're on a roll. OK, yeah, sure thing. So Polkadot is kind of what we'd call a meta protocol. Right. And we don't really consider Polkadot to be a layer one chain. We actually consider Polkadot to be a layer zero chain. Like Polkadot is core infrastructure for the. I feel the like we're about to get very philosophical here. So I might have to either pour some whiskey or something. You know, this is about to get very meta. Yeah, it's definitely going to get meta. And if we're getting, you know, philosophical, I think, I hope that that is not landing too hard on the, the ears of the listeners. I'm not going to try to get too technical. 
we're going to keep it out of the realm of philosophy and more on the specifics of, of technicals. I want to double click on what you're saying here about it being a layer zero, right? Because I think what you guys are all about is providing a protocol on which many different blockchains can spring up and launch. So did you come to that? Like, did you guys sort of come to that as the first iteration or was this something that through looking out into the world of blockchain, you noticed didn't exist in the way that it should? Yeah, absolutely. So we could see that what was happening in the blockchain ecosystem was there were a lot of people out there building chains, right? And it would be, you know, maybe a chain for payments, maybe it was a chain for smart contracts or identity or something like that. But there was no real way to link together these chains, right? And to gather a, a network effect. Or you had chains that were kind of trying to do everything and be everything. So, I mean, that puts kind of an enormous level of work on the team that's trying to develop that chain, right? Because instead of building one product, they're building about four or five different products. They don't really get to define their core competency particularly well, right? So if you wanted to look at where the blockchain ecosystem might go, and this is what we were looking at when we were building Polkadot, it was about creating an environment where teams could really focus on their core competency and do that product well. So, you know, something for ultra fast payments, something for really good smart contracts, something for a uh, really good identity, but then not to have each of those things only exist in a bubble, but also to bring them together, right? So to create this message passing infrastructure where users can build applications that leverage each one of these services and each one of these products to build something that's larger. So you could view it all as sort of a dynamically emergent platform, right? That's all decentralized, but it's a platform that gains more and more features and subproducts over time as users are deploying further what we would call parachains or these single purpose utility chains. So what have been some of the breakout applications that have been built on Polkadot? I've definitely seen a lot of fundraisers happen in the space, a lot of different parachains that you're describing coming out. But what, you know, when we think about like maybe Ethereum, like there's been the DeFi summer, we saw, you know, protocols like Aave and and Yearn kind of grow to this size that's almost unimaginable given how young they are. Uh, what's the parallel for Polkadot? Yeah, well, it's, it's very early days in Polkadot land. I would say like parachain season uh, is just beginning. So for a long time, we were focused on building the core technology, and now we've actually deployed the first version of parachains onto uh, the Kusama network. And well, I can go into more detail on the Kusama network later, but essentially it's sort of a prototype. It's an early version. It's a proving ground for this technology. And there are already five or, well, six parachains deployed on the Kusama network. And those are focusing on, for example, DeFi, on smart contracts. Uh, on layer two scaling and on uh, identity secure compute using some secure hardware, right? So those are, you know, for example, some of the first projects that we're starting to see emerge on Polkadot. Over time, we're going to see, you know, those projects gain their own communities and grow and have further applications built on top of that. And I expect that like what we're going to see in the earlier stages is essentially a, a mirroring of what has been done already, right? Like people are going to look at what has already been successful in uh, in like say the bitcoin space and in the ethereum space and they're going to try to duplicate that or replicate it on polkadot whereas over time they're going to be able to adapt to some of like the 
more specific things that you could do on Polkadot but couldn't do on Ethereum or on some other platform, right? And that's going to be about users leveraging that new infrastructure and new tooling and new methods for building applications that are, you know, leaning on highly specialized purpose-built blockchains as opposed to, you know, something very general like a like a smart contract platform as a base. How difficult has it been to get the requisite talent to build some of this stuff out? I mean, the the one thing I hear about, you know, a lot of conferences is you have these other layer ones sponsoring, you know, an Ethereum conference because they want to get the eyeballs and the attention of the developers because the pool of talent is so small. How do you navigate that that challenge? Yeah, I think that's been something that has been exacerbated by our use of the the Rust programming language, but ultimately that has been a uh, a good choice. Uh, it's important to I think make the distinction between like the skill set that you need to write an application in Solidity, like Ethereum smart contracting language, versus actually the the skill set that you would need to build Ethereum. Right, those are kind of disparate things. Where one is about mm -hmm. creating a consensus system, and the other is about using it. It's like writing a web browser versus writing a web page. You are mm -hmm. completely different people for that. Uh, we've gone quite deep into universities and building, you know, partnerships there, and deep into the Rust community. You know, our our approach was that we could build a very strong core research team who were not themselves software developers. Have a few people who are software developers who would function as bridges between that core research, you know, people who can mm. digest papers, people who have experience building cryptographic systems, people who have experience building distributed systems, and then use those people to train and oversee the technicals that are being executed on by just Rust developers, people who have systems development backgrounds. And that's kind of made it easier to draw from a talent pool, which is fairly narrow. Like if you're talking about the intersection of Rust and blockchain, Rust developers are now more and more in demand. I mean, it's fantastic to see what is happening. Like big tech, Apple, Amazon, Google are all hiring as many Rust developers as they can get their hands on is what I'm seeing. But we started with this very early. We started working with Rust already in, in 2016. And, you know, I think the market has gotten a lot better for us to acquire good talent as this trend is emerging. So what are some of the other challenges if it's not just hiring, what else might serve as an impediment to getting to that that next level to get to as you said the sort of, you know, season of parachains. Well, I think um a lot of it is about how we're going to grow organizationally, right? So over the last 4 years, Parity Technologies, which does most of the development for the Polkadot protocol, uh, is now an 180-person company. We're hiring, we're growing, mm. right? So we're balancing this growth also with trying to be community-oriented because, I mean, our ultimate goal is to create something that's around for the next decades, right? And we've kind of started from the ground up to make a protocol which is going to be adaptable, which is going to be governable by the community. Um, and that means that it's it's not just something that's being overseen by one software development company. This is something that we have to create sort of institutions, norms, governing bodies, standards, et cetera, uh, around. And I think this is going to be one of the pivotal challenges, honestly, with getting blockchain into the mainstream and making sure that blockchain is here to stay, especially out of this new wave of layer one and layer zero platforms, right? Like I'd say Bitcoin and Ethereum are quite well cemented, but have the other 
new field of projects bridge that gap yet? And our goal with Polkadot is to bridge that gap. Well, I think a lot of it has to do with like exercising or sort of creating a a marketing message around what you're all about, right? You know, when investors think about Bitcoin, they think digital gold. Ethereum, meanwhile, has kind of positioned itself as digital oil, so to speak. And like those narratives, creating those narratives stick. And then they do have some level of sticking power that helps people identify and like understand exactly what it is that they're doing. Does Polkadot have something similar in your view? I'd put it as uh, a platform for building unstoppable applications. So applications that are not going to go down, applications that don't require constant oversight and monitoring because they are like, say, in the form of a roughly immutable program on the blockchain. And I'd say this is quite similar to the messaging from Ethereum, but there is a, you know, a core distinction in that what we're essentially doing is, is commoditizing blockchain security, right? Like, so making it more difficult to attack the platform, making it more difficult to attack the blockchains that are built on top of it. So what are some of the applications that you think will have the most impact on current systems? Well, I think um, identity is going to be very important. And the way that I kind of look at what's going to be impactful on current systems is to sort of think about like the process of human coordination. So one thing that I think automation and uh, uh, like sort of the digital age that we've entered into is particularly bad about is removing the possibility for subtlety and removing the possibility for you know subtle forms of, of communication, right? There's this notion of, of social capital, of how people can cooperate and coordinate together, which is going to, you know, create more value for the society. I think, you know, ultimately, when you look at a, a blockchain platform, this is a human institution, like this is just a giant coordination game. So when you look at it through that lens of, you know, what types of, of value that you can create, our ultimate service that we provide as a blockchain platform is the ability for people to create their own rules of engagement and to follow those games, right? Like sort of in a sense, democratizing access to the ability to create rules. So where we're coming from is to create the framework where you can expand the set of possible games that people could create uh, as much as possible. And when you come in from that perspective, and sorry, I had to take such a long detour to get back to this, I think the ability to identify people is going to be very important. I think the ability to, uh, to pay people is going to be very important and also to uh, to govern, right? To create shared assets, to create shared governance structures of those groups that are that are formed. Are you talking about facial recognition? Uh, not really. Sort of like um, proofs of uniqueness, right? Whatever whatever that may may be, mm. right? Different applications are going to need different different forms of of identity. That's interesting. So, what's the state of that right now, and how does blockchain improve that? Um, well, I'd say there are some there are some interesting projects. For example, like what's going on in in with the Estonian EID, right? Like you can you can get your own private key. It's vouched for by a um, by a, a large organization by a country. That's one mm. thing that's happening. 
And I think this this follows a trend of like, you know, you can create systems where users are private, but they're sort of powered by attestations by other known groups, right? You can sort of create your own metrics for when to evaluate a user as trusted or not. The the zero knowledge technology that's been coming out is very interesting for that. You know, for example, you'd be able to prove that a person has an age over 21, right? If they, they're going to drink they, or their age is over 25, if they're going to rent a car without actually revealing what that person's age is. And this is sort of where, you know, there's a there's a, a, a project called Kilt that's building on Polkadot comes in where it's all about like being able to prove different kinds of statements about users without really revealing too much about the user, right? And you can have different kinds of applications that might want to set restrictions, like which jurisdiction does this user come from? Which, what is their background? Do they have assets? Do they have collateral? Do they have all of these things? Without actually revealing all of that, without making all of that totally transparent. So in a sense, it's a way to kind of give people back their privacy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And somewhat selectively dox themselves uh, yeah. under the circumstances that they need to. Maybe for folks who aren't super familiar with the way that works, how does what's the math and computer science behind how they're able to like reveal these things without revealing these things? And that can get very complicated very fast, but Yeah. I mean what it what it ultimately boils down to is having a lot of commitments to some sort of secret. It's a masked value of some kind, right? Like this is the truth. And you have many people making, you know, commitments to this masked truth, right? And it's it's masked in a different way for every individual, right? So, you know, it's not like a, a Caesar cipher where it's like A always turns into M, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever you see M, you know it's A. It's not like that, right? So for me, it might, you know, A might turn into B. For you, Frank, like A might turn into X, right? So you can't look at that and actually see, okay, that is A. And then you can write essentially little programs, right? Where you can provide, you know, the the masked data, right? Like say like my masked age, my masked date of birth, my masked origin, the place I'm coming from. And it can give you an answer, which is like, yes or no. Is this actually above the limit? Is it actually below the limit? Is this within a certain area? You can write these programs, they're called circuits. But the the cool thing is that you can prove that you have the answer to the circuit. You have the thing that will make the circuit say yes without actually revealing what that data is. And that's, you know, that's the zero knowledge technology. Like this is something that has been under development. It's you know what you would call moon math. It's really high level out there stuff. It's been in an active area of research for about 40 or 50 years. But what's been going on in the past 10 years has been, you know, absolutely incredible. I want to give another shout out to Aventus. Aventus is the world's leading platform for digital asset trade surveillance, market risk, and transaction monitoring with some of the largest crypto exchanges and institutions in the world using Aventus to drive efficiencies in their regulatory operations and mitigate the risks of fines and reputational damage. Visit AventusSystems.com today to find out why 80% of the firms who take a custom demo become clients. Shine a light on your trading today with Aventus. For the last 10 years, Kraken has been known as one of the best platforms for trading crypto online. Now with the new Kraken app, it's easier than ever to buy and sell over 60 of the most popular cryptocurrencies on the go 24 seven. 
Simply download the Kraken app, connect your bank account, and start investing for as little as $10. Just a minute is all it takes to get started. I also want to give a special thanks to Exodus. Exodus is one of the most loved crypto apps due to its sleek design and easy to use exchange feature. Secure and manage over 130 cryptocurrencies from your computer or phone, and interactive charts let you view the price history of a specific asset and your portfolio's performance over time. Sync your wallet across multiple devices to access your funds from anywhere. Maybe the best part is Exodus is integrated with the Trezor hardware wallet, making advanced security easy for everyone. Download Exodus at Exodus.com today. Super interesting. Last night, I like couldn't fall asleep and I was watching this um, documentary on Amazon. I find Jeff Bezos to be very interesting, especially his like transformation as like this figure, um, you know, kind of going from a nerdy book clerk to this master of the universe. And then anyway, the documentary goes into like how the Amazon Alexa is like listening to you and there were all these all these controversies about them kind of transcribing some of the things that folks would say to kind of program it to better understand some of these demands or sort of queries that folks have when they speak to Alexa. And, you know, there's just like this, the whole, the world that we're operating in is moving so much closer to us completely divulging everything about ourselves to the likes of Amazon, the likes of Facebook, and either, you know, we're going to, we're either going to have to decide that we're going to give everything to them completely or go to a platform that implements something like zero knowledge proof so that we can then kind of just protect ourselves from being completely monopolized by or dominated by these, these entities that know everything about us. There's the old expression, you know, give someone their date book and their checkbook and you know everything you need to know about them. What a scary world that is. And I think that's that's certainly the the trend. For that reason, like that's why cryptography, you know, that's where I really started, was so interested to me because in a way it is the last true moat. Most technologies and most of the distribution of power is set up in such a way that like the big guy can always overwhelm the little guy. And the way that we deal with cryptography is to to try to make statements of the form like never in a trillion, 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 trillion years would somebody be able to crack this key, right? Never would somebody ever be able to, within the lifespan of the universe, crack this, you know, and find a duplicate, be able to sign a message using your identity. And the cryptographic state of the art is constantly evolving, as well as like sort of the, the state of the art with consensus technology and, and, and all of those things, which work very closely hand in hand together. But the way that I see like Polkadot and the way that I see the, the the blockchain space is kind of this counterbalancing aspect to that trend that we are seeing, right? Like in that big tech is gearing up to gather as much data as possible. How do you create this refuge for people to have more control over their identity and more control over what they reveal? And one thing that's going to be particularly interesting about that, you know, is, well, how do you evolve the platform over time? You know, the current state of the art with cryptographic technology is this is what we know. And in the future, there are unknown unknowns, right? There's stuff that we know needs to improve, but then there are just going to be breakthrough technologies, right? Like somebody in a, in a lab at the NSA could just break the hash function that's used for 
Bitcoin proof of work. It could just break the signature scheme that's being used to sign all transactions on Ethereum. And you want to create a system which is upgradable, which can adapt to new technologies if you want to be able to stay one step ahead of the curve. And I mean, this is why I really want to stress this uh, meta protocol aspect of Polkadot, the fact that via governance, it is upgradable. You don't need to hard fork the network necessarily. You don't need to issue new node software under all circumstances. You know, there are a lot of things that you can just swap out like that and people don't need to update their nodes and you can stay one step ahead of the adversary. One thing that, um, and we talked about this with Robert Leshner at Compound, is this idea of the future where each blockchain kind of has their own niche or their own use case and entire markets or industries will then have that. That's their blockchain. So maybe something like Solana is the blockchain of the, you know, it could be something as specific as fixed income trading or just all high frequency trading. And then Ethereum has its own use case, et cetera. The list goes on. And then they're all kind of engaging in an interoperable way with sort of like intermediaries playing that role. Obviously, that's a hugely difficult challenge to tackle. But how do you see the world with sort of different blockchains interacting with each other? And how will they go about finding like, because I feel like everyone wants to do everything. So how do we sort of, how does that settle into maybe specific blockchains serving a, a more specific purpose? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think like you've hit upon a key point here, which is, you know, that you don't necessarily only have to specialize in technology, but you can also specialize on like community, right? Like who are the customers of a particular platform? Which region does it serve, right? Like, you know, mm. that can boil down even to things as like low latency, right? Like if that's something that needs to happen in a particular region, you could you know, design a system where like most of the, the infrastructure nodes in that region are are there. One of the, the, the sort of difficult things about interoperability is that, you know, the provenance of data and of tokens and of value is, is very important. Um, and it kind of can have this polluting effect where something that has a bad provenance, right? Let's say it's mm. originated from a system that's that's insecure or it's from prone. New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's got a, a spray tan and um, <laughs> somehow it gets transplanted over to some other chain, right? Which has stronger security properties that could then pollute some applications that are being used on it. So I think it's very important, right, to consider the prominence and consider the trust assumptions that are being implicitly baked in when you start to use certain types of assets in certain types of protocols. I mean, Solana in particular, right? Like it's designed to be, I would say, semi-centralized, right? Like, so it's, it's very fast, but it's what you would consider to be federated. They have like very few nodes, very high requirements to be a node, and that builds some fragility into the system. So if you had like, for example, an asset originating on Solana, that could make its way into the Polkadot ecosystem and then you know, that could just disappear, right? Like there's no way to use it anymore because Solana has gone down or, or something like that. So to speak a bit more on the as we like, how do you transform that market of what we have now where people are kind of replicating ideas, right? Either from Web2, either from Ethereum and putting those onto Polkadot, moving that more into the um, hyper-specialized realm, like my expectation is that this would happen due to simple market pressures. 
there's only a certain amount of value which is going to be spent on securing blockchains, right? So, you know, whether that's in the sense of buying mining machines and buying electricity for those mining machines, or it's in the sense of locking up capital to participate in a proof of stake network, that's a finite resource and, you know, intentionally so. So if there's this finite resource of security that the entire blockchain ecosystem is going to be competing over, we have to find a way to allocate that somehow. So the, you know, one of the main goals of Polkadot is to try to allocate these security resources via market mechanism to the chains that join the platform. And I think this is going to create a natural pressure towards comparative advantage, right? Like if there's too many duplicate products, eventually one will just outcompete another or it'll be outcompeted by something there is just more market demand for. Uh, and over time, you're going to see this natural shift towards either specialization of purpose or specialization of community based on, you know, what can reasonably acquire the security resources. One thing that I alluded to, um, which I think is worth bringing up and exploring, is Gateway, which is built on Substrate. What do you think about the way in which everything is connected? Because that's super important, I think. The way in which everything is connected, like, for example, do you mean standards for communication, message passing, things like that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, How do we figure out, like, while everyone's trying to sort of compete against each other or find their own, you know, dominance in the market, how do we create these standards for them to sort of communicate and engage? We're kind of in a time of heavy experimentation right? Like a lot of this interoperability stuff that's been talked about for a very long time is just coming to fruition now, right? We're seeing like the first parachains, we're seeing the first bridges between ecosystems. Uh, and you have to be able to play around with things and experiment before you can standardize. Otherwise you get a standard that's not based in reality. Um, mm. So it's going to shift. I think, I think we need to shift to say like creating something akin to like W3C working groups. Like what has happened in the history of, of the internet, right? That made it so much more possible. Like you don't want to pursue something like vendor lock-in. You don't want to pursue something that's going to limit the barrier to entry to build because that's just going to mean less productivity, less value created for, for the world at large. How do you see Polkadot tapping into a lot of the activity that we're seeing in the DeFi world? Well, I think there are there are a couple interesting aspects. One of the first ones is just simple scalability. Like if, if you observe what happens during periods of high demand on say Ethereum, then the, the gas fees go up, you're gonna pay a hundred bucks per transaction. You know, if you're moving millions of dollars around, that's not much to you. But if you're just a, a regular person who wants to participate, that's going to eat into your returns to the point where like, it's no longer a viable strategy for you. So having chains that are just simply more scalable, which is one of the things that the migration to proof of stake networks is going to achieve, you know, proof of stake, like what we're doing, that's going to open the door and make it more um, inclusive where people can just execute more strategies without as much capital behind them. There's also, I mean, I don't know if you've been following this whole like minor extractable value mm -hmm. debate. Well, for those of you who are listening who might not be familiar, it's this notion of like the block author having the ability to reorder transactions in a block, right? Like they, ha they, have some, they have some pool of transactions that have been submitted to them. Their job is to put them into a block and they can like, 
reorder them or put their own transactions before or after in order to like sort of front run or back run the trades that that others are doing. And when you're writing like a, a smart contract on something like Ethereum or on Binance Smart Chain, a smart contract is a fundamentally different primitive than writing your own blockchain because smart contracts are primarily event driven. The only thing you can really do is say, okay, I have an incoming transaction. It looks like this. How do I respond to it? What you can't do is affect the logic of what does it mean? Like, how do you order the transactions in a block? So when you're writing a blockchain, for example, with Substrate on Polkadot, you get the ability to say, these are the rules for how transactions as an aggregate are put into a block. And you can start to shave away and make some of those like minor extractable value techniques more difficult, if not impossible. And what that's going to do is essentially make it more difficult to exploit users who are using DeFi systems, right? You're not going to have your your profits constantly cut into by some aggressive miner who's reordering your transactions or sandwiching them. Super interesting. You know, I feel like we've unpacked a lot of a lot of interesting topics and threads, but not enough about you, Rob. Let's bring it back to what you. What do you want to know? I was I was looking at your LinkedIn and it's very simple. I think you you have in your your biotechnology guy, which I appreciate. I like directness. You know, I try to keep when I do interviews for the purpose of writing stories, I try to keep them under 10, 15 minutes. So that that level of terse expression, I appreciate. You were a, a Teal fellow. There's not that many of those. What was that process like? Yeah, it was um it was pretty interesting. I got introduced to the Teal Fellowship, I think through Joey. Krug. So I, I heard about the thing, right, when Vitalik got it and when mm-hmm. uh, Joey got it. And I thought, okay, that, that seems interesting. And in 20, I guess it was late 2016, I wrote off an, an application and you know, started to, to, to meet some of the people. Allison, who is sort of the coordinator of the whole thing, I met her. She's, she's absolutely wonderful and met them at a few different events. Then I didn't really hear hear back for for a little while, and I think it was April 2018. We all went out to the, I guess the the 60 finalists went out to the Teal Capital office. So there was a round of interviews. You know, we talked to a bunch of different people. They were quizzing us and, and grilling us and trying to see what we were like. And found out a few months later that I, that I'd been accepted. So they, they accept about 20 people each year. And it's a it's a really good community. Like they're looking for pretty capable people. One thing that I think gave me an advantage was that a lot of the people who were applying were, I think, very, very smart, very, very hardworking, but they were looking to get the fellowship so that they could start doing what they were doing. I think the thing that gave me uh, an advantage, although I haven't confirmed this, was the fact that I was already working on Polkadot. I was already working on like yeah. stuff and I dropped out of school already. Do you recommend most people drop out of school? I do not know, but I I mean there's there's such an element of like survivorship bias. I think yeah. you've just got to be aware of what's happening in the world, right? Like you've got to mm-hmm. look around and pay attention and see what's happening and I think there are always these seams in society, right? And what's going on in the world of technology and what's going on, you know, between people and how they disagree and what's needed and just find that know about it and push on that seam. And if you find it, then stick with it. If you don't find it, then it makes sense to start like accruing classical 
accreditations and degrees and things like that. But as long as you're aware and looking around and taking bets on stuff that's early, there's a way to success. Just pay attention to your surroundings. I like that advice. That's important. You know, I, I feel like, you know, people think they need to just keep going down the path that has already been trotted down, but that kind of like closes you off from a lot of the, you know, opportunities. Part of the reason why I joined the block, I just thought it was such a weird move. And to a degree, it's paid off. I got to meet Dean, the producer, and have a podcast. Talk to people like Rob. Anyway, this flew by. I've had such a great time chatting with you. Where can people learn more about what you're working on? And if they want to get in touch, I guess they can go to your, your LinkedIn and, and find the technology guy. But where can people find you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the easiest way to learn about what we're doing is just to, to head to the website. So we have kind of the two projects. We have Polkadot, which is like um, the the super, super production one. And then we have Kusama, which is our sort of chaos version of it. It's value bearing, but it's um, uh, it's got a community norm of chaos. So we can mm-hmm. deploy stuff earlier onto there. So you can go to the polkadot.network website or the kusama.network website. There's a bunch of links from there to wikis and things it's i'd say primarily more aimed towards like technical people but there should be a lot of good information in there no matter what background you come from if you want to get in touch with me can probably guess my email i don't really feel comfortable just saying it out loud on a podcast but uh, i wish we could zero knowledge proof this 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 part of the podcast (laughs) yeah no it's okay you need to share uh well thank you so much for coming on the show uh we'll have to have you on again soon Thanks for joining. Thanks, Frank. It was really great to join. The Scoop will be back for you again with another exciting guest next week. Talk to you all soon.